Hi, Nate. Hey, Tom. Have you heard about the friars who were behind on their belfry payments? No. No. So there were some friars who were cash-strapped on these payments. So they opened up a small flower shop to raise funds. And, you know, everybody in town, they liked, if they had a choice, they would rather buy flowers from men of God. So that's what quickly became market dominant. But there was a rival florist across town who, who was upset about this, understandably. He asked these friars to shut down. They wouldn't do it. So he took matters into his own hands, hired the local fixer, Hugh McTaggart, the roughest and most vicious thug in town, to make these friars an offer that they, they couldn't refuse. So Hugh beat them up, trashed their store, said he'd be back if they ever tried to pull this shit again. So of course the friars had no choice, they were terrified. They closed up shop. And of course what that tells us yet again is that Hugh and only Hugh can prevent florist friars. <laughs> wow, I, re- I really didn't know where this was going, but this is probably one of our better ones. Welcome to the retort. We're not talking about forest fires, unfortunately. We are talking about AI, and it's been a busy week. I don't know. We'll see how much how much reading Tom has done, how much explaining. Different kind of fire. A different kind of fire, yeah. I mean, it's ongoing today. We're recording on Wednesday the 21st. The next flurry of releases are coming. People in AI love to release things on the same day. Last week we had the OpenAI Sora model, which you've probably heard about in all sorts of podcasts. If you listen to one AI podcast, we assume you probably listened to a couple. We're not going to go through the technical details in too much detail. It's awesome. We had Gemini shipping a new model. Today we had what really is a new Gemini model called Gemma, which is Google shipping an open source model. But all signs indicate that it is like a training run from Gemini or like the same infrastructure. They're like, okay, let's let's open source it for the fans, so to say. <laughs> let's let's, <laughs> let's give the people what they want, which I think it's good that Google's doing that again. We'll talk about that. And we'll see. There's plenty of other topics if we run out of time. But I think Sora is the one that fits best for our general theme, which is like AI is breaking the world. And what does it mean? I mean, I think there's a lot of different takes in Sora. I don't know. Like, what what is your starting point when you see realistic text to video, Tom? Like, like what what do you think about society in this? Like, I don't think copyright is the thing. There's lots of little issues. Like, copyright isn't really the thing. Like, people losing their jobs. Like, yes, that's important. But we've seen that as a society in mass before. Like, like reallocation of talent and labor is a thing that is accompanied in technological revolutions. But I think the social fabric, like, like we were talking about the metaverse, is wild. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, at a high level, my thoughts really aren't that different than what they have been for some time which is this is about supply chains and so people will look to reskill whether you're creative or whether you're you know related in some other way to video production or marketing across the supply chain so this is a tool it's a very powerful tool in this toolbox but it's not clear to me even from the videos that i've seen that it's not like this is going to automate the entertainment industry overnight, right? It's maybe worth keeping in mind, you know, if, if the question is like, what does this mean for society? You know, my recollection of the like SAG strikes, the actor strikes that were going on, or it feels like ancient history, honestly. Yeah, it should have waited until now. <laughs> yeah, well, in that case though, I think it's a different cut, right? Because of course that was a larger, you know, Hollywood has its own dynamics, which and this, this is an AI podcast, but we're not, trying to treat everything like a nail and AI is the hammer. The, that, that strike happened for lots of reasons, you know. Hollywood has its own kind of like multi-decade cycle when this stuff gets relitigated. Part of it though was related to the fact that studios understandably have been interested in moving on, you know, getting to this kind of business model where you're a day player, you know, you're an extra. They give you $50 to scan your likeness, you know, 3D scan. And then they never need you again because they, you know, they own your likeness or at least the version they scanned. And then they can just put you into the background of any Marvel movie 
you know, any like whatever mass crowd scene they need. And that's like, they don't need to keep hiring you. And that, that frankly does break the back of a lot of the entertainment industry because the whole basis for the union is that it protects those kinds of people. Um, there are these very, very, very radical, extreme power laws of talent and whatnot that define the movie industry where there's like a few, very, very few major celebrities at the tippy top who we all know, you know, you, you have their image in your head and you know their names. But then there's like many, 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 many thousands of people, tens of thousands of people who you'll never know who those people are. But so much of the entertainment industry is built on top of those people, whether they're in front of the camera or behind the camera. And I think because there is so much human resources behind getting anything worth watching off the ground at scale, there will be plenty of opportunities to reskill or redistribute that labor, even in the context of a tool that's seemingly magical, you know, like video generation from text because that does feel magical like they could have their livelihood they're not going to get redistributed at one-to-one though like they could be lower relative compensation and i think that's why people are like the the compensation essentially gets skimmed by the tool that's providing the leverage and if the leverage is the fact that you could generate a ton of videos really easily open ai will take a bigger cut than the what used to be the people trained in the arts and yeah, this is, so, this is all hypothetical, but that's I think that's why it's like where the argument. It's definitely not one to one. Yeah, I I would. It's definitely not going to be a one to one reallocation or reskilling. History tells us that that's like never. There will be few people never that happened. go like one to a hundred by designing their workflow for new tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it what what it's likely to do is take an already very stratified industry and make it even more stratified in terms of what, talent, in terms of skills. What do you think about yeah. outside of Hollywood? Because I think a lot of this is like, I, I was on the record saying I don't think the general public has access before the election, given how it's likely that people would easily be able to keep jailbreaking whatever filters OpenAI has and generate propaganda for the presidential election. Like, do you think that's a ridiculous take or do you think OpenAI will actually give people access? What do we have? Eight months? I think that's about, they didn't launch GPT-4 or announce GPT-4, but they were doing safety for a really long time. So like, I, I don't know if they take the same playbook for every model, which is like, it's ready to go. We'll do, we'll roll it out in a couple months or if they're just going to keep this locked down because the internet's not ready to deal with this. Like, I mean, I'd rather not play the game of predicting what I think OpenAI is or is not <laughs> going to do here. I, I think we kind of act like they, there's kind of, there is reactive, I think, is the rest I mean, what should part. they do? I mean, Don't predict them. Make what a, should they do? You're, you're now on the spot. You have to make the decision of, like, you could give this access to people. Like, should they, as a member of society, should they give people access to the model, understanding that there's going to be a lot of political propaganda made with this? Like, so, like, that it reminds me. not release it? An interesting kind of anecdote comes into my head here that I think is relevant where, so like if you talk to sociologists who study why there are mafias or how you explain the existence of a mafia, the consensus explanation is that mafias arise, in other words, organized crime. Okay, what, what does it take for crime to become organized? And the answer, you know, on one level is unsurprising, which is that there is uh, an unreliable or non-existent police force due to the fact that there's like insufficient state control or regulation or oversight of some market in particular. And so a mafia arises sort of to act as a kind of pseudo state, a pseudo regulator for some market, right? That's why the mafia in America had this giant heyday during prohibition, okay, racketeering, the government made something illegal that didn't make demand for it go away. And so there was a, a supply chain that needed to be secured and people stepped in to do it. You know, most famously Al Capone, lots of other people around the country, of course. But there are implications behind that that are interesting, which is whenever there is an enormous amount of demand for some tool or service that the government is not really quite in a confident position to regulate or oversee, 
That doesn't mean that there isn't also a parallel need for rules to determine what acceptable or safe or even reliable use, right? Of like whatever that tool or service is, right? So a lot of what these mafia folks were doing, like in Chicago in the 1920s, actually a lot of it was like making sure that it was safe to drink, you know, because they didn't want people getting blind when they drank some like moonshine or shit like that, right? Like they really were kind of functioning almost as like a Italian-American FDA that was just sort of their job. So I'm getting to your question here. What should OpenAI do? Basically what we need is someone to be a source for either being able to control um, access to the product in such a way that there is no possible use of it that could not be vouched for. My read of that is that that's probably unlikely to be achieved, or I'm skeptical that it can be. Or that there's some kind of very stringent oversight <clears throat> over the people or the contexts in which these kinds of capabilities can be used. So if OpenAI did nothing, I think the state, in other words, the US government, I guess the federal government, would have to step in with new kinds of at least suggestions, if not actual like required regulations, saying something like there's a major fine for the use of this technology, especially if it's on to mimic specific people. I mean, I mean there is a kind of election specific stuff. There's an example that's relevant. Did you see the whole Air Canada snafu with a, like a chatbot? No, is that they had a, no. they were using chatbots in customer support, and the customer support made up a re- refund policy, and then a court said that this AI chat LLM chatbot refund policy had to be held accountable too. So so they ended up having to pay this customer this type of thing. So like, oh, they did have to pay the customer. That's in, interesting. In this case, it's a lot easier because this is more of a like monetary transaction i think in terms of like reputations and things like like the ftc can say that imitating people is illegal for phone spam but that's not going to mean people aren't going to do it like like there's a difference between that's the 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 that's like prohibition exactly yeah well yeah exactly so either way i think either way there will be enforcement so what should open ai do Look, honestly, I'm not sure I trust OpenAI to be the gatekeeper for that enforcement. I would rather it be somebody else. I would rather the government step up here because I think there are kinds of enforcement that could be done that if done right would work or at least be well-motivated. If OpenAI does it, they ought to do it in pretty close consortium with what the feds are expecting or wanting from this stuff. I don't think it should be done unilaterally by industry. I just think like, like what does enforcement look like to you? Like, I think what this means is somebody's going to make an open AI account. They're going to bypass the open AI, like safety filters. They're going to generate some ridiculous video of Trump or Biden, like freaking croaking because they're old and like some old person propaganda. (sighs) And then they're going to like, post it online and they're not, their account will be like, what's going to happen is this person's account can get shut down. Like, is OpenAI's terms of service enforceable and like political penalties? Like, I, I don't really know how I see enforcement actually happening other than like terms of service level, which terms of service are not really binding contracts in law. Well, let me clarify my stance here. If OpenAI is going to do anything, they need to not do it alone. But my true preference would be that OpenAI actually does nothing. <laughs> because <laughs> I think, and the, and the reason I think that is it's actually that's where i was going with that original analogy which is actually some prominent sociologists right who i respect at the height of like so there was this murder increase that happened in the united states in urban cities quite infamously that i think was elevated over the course of the 80s and 90s in particular it then finally started to level off but there was a series of there was like two decades or so when it was like precipitously increasing and no one really understood why and no one really understood what to do about it and there, it got so bad that some social scientists, you know, it's bad when like a social scientists who are not economists are brought in <laughs> to like try and make sense of a problem. And in this case, there was one in particular, Randall Collins, whose work was a big influence on me during my early development, I guess. And he famously said that it would actually be better that the state could either spend many billions of dollars, like just entirely like reprioritizing public safety and hiring 
tens of thousands of police officers to make it so that crime could be more easily, you know, monitored, prevented, whatever, whatever have you. Or it could actually take a step back and deliberately do nothing. Because, and it would be really bad for a little bit of time, but then eventually you'd see a mafia. Yeah, then everyone has And a mafia would effectively serve as a kind of private enforcer. It's like, do you think the general public is like actually going to go through this generative AI phase and realize that everything on the internet is untrustworthy? Or is it only like our generation and younger? Like, do you think our parents' generation could legitimately like transition within six months to understanding the context that like you have to snoop everything you see to be true or false like i think the examples everyone talks about is that like it's hard for these people to adjust to like algorithmic timelines fake media and stuff in the same way that younger people are but do you think video is a different medium in that regard yeah i think video is a different medium in that regard i don't know if it changes that fundamental dynamic i think qualitatively the dynamic is probably the same although we know that video uh, emotionally engages people differently. And I think also tends to be, well, it depends on the video, but it can engage people to a much greater degree than just static, you know, photos. But yeah, I, my, my gut is to buy into the basic idea, which is that older people, I mean, I'm thinking of my parents right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm not that old, not like too old people. Not, like people that still are very functional and normal. You know, they're just, look, you, you see, I think I, I forget if I've said this on our, show before but i've certainly said in person before that content if if the question is because we've shifted now at first we were talking about the economics of this stuff and how economically disruptive it'll be now we're talking more just about societally politically epistemically how disruptive is it going to be younger people have been acculturated for a long time now to having a kind of ironic attitude towards a lot of online stuff not necessarily because they had gender. I don't think it's necessary. That, their attitude may not be good, but continue. Like, that's a separate debate. <laughs> I'm not saying it's good, but that's, I think, I've, that I've never heard that argument. I'm just saying I've never heard that argument. We can come back to that. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I, I think that if I were to speculate a bit about what I think the reason for that is, it's that content generation, not due to like AI, but just due to like, just, it's just it, like memes, it just has become so cheap and easy to generate content and put it online in a way that it could get engagement. I, I, I'm mostly that, thinking about like how these people, they're the most common career that people want from seeing all this content is to be a YouTuber or a TikToker. And these career paths are not fundamentally differentiating based on like hard skills. It's differentiating on like ability to be like a personality that is rewarded by the algorithm. And I think Mm -hmm. picking your career path on something that is sensitive to the algorithm and the fact that that's popular is wild because that is such a hard hustle life that people don't want to like, like the, the weirdness of those incentives to compare to what used to be popular in American society, like couldn't be a bigger shift. And, and I, I'm just like, people need like, I I know there's a lot of people that are like, Oh, the the gen alpha is totally after they can't read, but like talking about the incentives of these generations is also important to showcase that like, there's big problems here. Right. So there's the incentives question. The fact that younger people are, you know, we are hustling because we're career driven and we're still trying to like climb. And if AI or algorithms are changing the game of that, that rewrites the rules by which we hustle. There's also just the cognitive dimension, which is, yeah, old people, they're just slower. I mean, like, I mean, I live in New York and I'm biased now, but like, I mean, I'm, I know I become a New Yorker when I'm like behind somebody on the on the sidewalk, and I'm like, God damn, this person's just fucking slow. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably that just energy to California. <laughs> it's just because they're old, and it's not. Yeah, it's like it's yes, you're a citizen, and yes, you you have the same rights I do. But God, God damn, you have to be, <laughs> it's slow on this. It's just the the pace of life is different, and so I think when the pace of life is different, and also, I mean, those people truly, this is the more sort of media side side of the argument. They, they, they really did grow up in a different media environment than we did. They were not media saturated in the way that we are. Media generation was not as cheap. It was not as prevalent. It was not like we, we grew up, I mean, you and I like grew up in a world that's still like an order of magnitude or more less media saturated than what people are growing up with now. Yeah. And, and what I mean by that is like, the fact that we know you and I both knew growing up. We just sensed it. It wasn't even conscious. 
that there was always going to be a hundred times more content out there than we could consume, even if all we did was consume content. Yes, this is why I don't. That read, was I read like no papers. I read like no newsletters. <laughs> it's like, well, it's gotten that's gotten worse over time because it's only gotten cheaper and cheaper, and it's been easier and easier. It, to it's so far that it wasn't even a cost thing. It wasn't possible for previous generations. Previous generations' content was filtered by geographic and physical constraints, and now it's like now content is filtered to personal taste, and that is an extremely different thing. And I think video really completes that arc where like. Video mm. content didn't really mm. exist. I mean, it existed on like over the air, very pre. You had a set number of ca channels, cable stuff, and now it's like there's effectively infinite video that can be tailored to an individual's tastes, which is like this is like the completion of the arc of. You kind of have infinite video, and you have infinite agents that are tunable to people's tastes. Like that's the last thing yeah. that you could kind of come up with in a zero marginal cost content world. So well, we're not right. I mean. We're maybe still a little bit out from a, a truly interestingly dystopian future where there will be entire seasons of Seinfeld that I've seen that you haven't because I I had them auto generated and <laughs> like I've been on like an emotional journey with shows with books with movies with music whatever that is yeah just my own my own spirit animal my own spirit journey and. That, that's another side of this that also needs to be considered. I think the way I would sum this up, though, is like when it comes to the history of media, it is true that during periods of, and you know, we, we don't really know where this is going or exactly which analogies are warranted here. But like when you think about what did the emergence of the printing press do to late medieval, early modern Europe, Right. Some historians argue that the emergence of the printing press is actually that is the demarcator between the Middle Ages and, and the modern period. That it's not the fall of Constantinople and it's not whatever. It's it's really literally just something as banal. It's a very techno-optimist angle, but I agree. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't have to be optimist. I think it's just the, the disruption. <laughs> yeah. It's just the fact that it became so cheap to mass produce text and information. Like if that's if that's the demarcator then it is bizarre, though it may seem, this week may have introduced a new epoch of human history <laughs> in the sense that uh, these new models are, are affected. So, it sounds silly to say it, but yeah. It's so telling that it's yeah. like a world that I don't want to live in. Like, I don't want video tailored to me because I know I'm going to be so susceptible to that. It's like not that hard to know that I like like endurance sports, Formula One, and like cool science things. It's like... It's not that hard to come up with near infinite content, and it's just crippling to be able to plug into that at zero cost all the time in terms of like personal volition. Like it will well, destroy I mean, my personal volition in some some ways, or just constantly be detracting from it. I'll play. I'll have to play a little bit fast and loose with history here, but you know, whatever. Our podcast is not really meant to. Get we are the ground truth. <laughs> so I think that I think that the printing press analogy is interesting. And I, it's worth it's worth sitting with, and you know I think I've already basically said why I think that is. So I'll stop there. But I think another really important historical parallel here, which I've also written about in more of my work, and which I think actually is going to matter more in terms of how we, because this this is effectively here. Like we're not just going to make it so that like okay, once we have this, it's not going to be like now let's just not do it. Like crack cocaine still exists. <laughs> once it became possible to like easily mass distribute crack. That just becomes a problem for society that is basically going to exist as long as the supply chains that can underpin that kind of production continue to exist. So we will have to reckon with this. I think the clearest parallel historically to the problem you just raised, which is how can we say no to these new kinds of poison that define our lived experience, or in this case, our media experience, like, this is public health. This is the domain of public health. And if you look at the history of public health, the different periods when there was a need for it, it usually was induced by some new kind of technological development that caused people to cohabitate with each other in unsustainable and unprecedented ways. And that there were then indirect consequences of that, like epidemics 
of cholera or typhus or tuberculosis or the Cuyahoga River catching fire in the 20th century, you know, factories being put right next to giant rivers whose water was now no longer not even potable, but flammable, <laughs> actually. And what there needed to be was a reappraisal of the environment, the environment of cities, the environment literally in the sense of the ecosystem, and what new kinds of mechanisms or means of control were needed to regulate that environment at a level of, of abstraction that we previously didn't, we didn't have to worry about. It's funny, actually, when you and I were at RLDM last or two years ago, I guess it was. Because yeah. it was a brown, right? <laughs> yeah. And we, I mean, there's a lot we, there's a lot we did on that trip, which is not relevant here. But when I was on that trip, I was up late at night reading about this, about the history of public health, about the history of specifically 19th century. I remember century. talking about this. At least so. It, yeah. It's vaguely familiar. Well, because the point there was, and I want to, this is what needs to be emphasized, I think. Cholera, typhus, the plague, these were not new diseases, the actual pathology of the disease was not new. The ancient Greeks were aware of these diseases. They had their own means of, you know, treating them that actually were fairly effective on the individual level. But what was new was the fact that these diseases were simultaneously, almost overnight, ravaging entire populations of people because people were living differently than they did in the ancient world. Cities had never been this big. They'd never been this dense. They'd never been, yeah, industrialization was this entirely new way of, of being. And it basically turned cities into a tinderbox for the spread of disease. But there was, there did end up being solutions to that. They took decades to work out. But the names of those solutions are things like epidemiology, sanitation systems, germ theory, okay, randomized control trials. I love all those, like, as a field. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Sorry. germ theory, right. I mean, you point microscopes at shit that's really small until you find the little fucker that gives <laughs> you cholera. Because <laughs> that was a revolutionary idea. People, and actually the Greeks thought this, they were dumb. They were, I mean, they were wrong. But people up until the 19th century, the consensus expert opinion was that disease was caused by what they called miasma, which, which is another way of saying when things smell bad, you have a greater propensity to get the plague, right? They thought that somehow the air, yeah. the effluvium of the air was just the medium Classic through which disease. Versus causation. Yeah. Well, they didn't have tools, you know, to measure anything else. And they also didn't understand how to isolate the variables. And it wasn't until, and this is not a Game of Thrones reference, but there was this other guy named Jon Snow in Victorian London who did the first, it wasn't technically a controlled experiment. It was a very brilliantly constructed natural experiment in which he was able to isolate neighborhoods where there were outbreaks kind of artificially relative to where they got their water. And he was able to find uh, an ex uh, a correlation between the water supply and cholera outbreaks that was so prohibitively strong that every other possible explanation basically fell in the dust. And so anyway, my point here is just to say, to your point, as an individual, you can't resist videos that have been auto-engineered specifically to appeal to your entire life trajectory and your sense of purpose and meaning. Look, public health tells us that that's not a new problem because it's not, the nature of that problem is so intense and dynamic and structural that it's, it can't be the responsibility of individual people to, to solve it or to deal with it on their own. We need sure. new institutions, new methods of measurement and assessment at a, at a higher level of abstraction to make it so that the downstream impacts of the use of these technologies is at least able to be monitored and also that policy can be set around it so that the effects are not prohibitively bad or toxic. Yeah, I mean, now that you're warmed up, let's move on to a potentially more sensitive generative AI topic. There's all these, a popular image going around with this new Gemini release. The Gemini 1.5 models essentially are better models, much longer context length, cheaper, Google's doing well in base model land. We could come back to long context length, but on this mm -hmm. topic of generative AI, one of the things that's going viral is this clip where you ask Gemini to generate me historically accurate images of kings in the Middle Ages, and one of them are, is black. And it's like... I regret like, not having seen this in advance. This is quite uh, funny to me. And it's like, who should be the... Like, today, 
I understand why Google does this. Like the machine learning models are biased in, to showing what is on the internet and they are, have a propensity to show white people in many situations and to reinforce many social biases, like a doctor being male rather than female. And then it's the yeah. thing of like, to what extent society, socially should we be okay with controlling of information? So like as generative AI becomes the backdrop of the internet, and most of the data is generated by generative generative AI. It's like how big of an issue does this type of thing, where it's going to rewrite history in some way, become? I like. I think this is like it's benign enough that it's an interesting example. There are more harmful examples in the past. I think it's like what's what's your take? I could pull up the image while you're looking. I yeah, I'm curious to to see it, or you can direct me to it. It follows, I think, from what I've already been saying, right? Which is up until now, look, it's, we all, I think we all know this, but it's uncomfortable to really take responsibility for it. But that's actually the moment that we're facing. The reality that we actually have to be responsible about now and own is the fact that for the first mm, 20 or so years of its existence, but certainly in theory, and I think to a large extent in practice, the internet and everything on the internet was supplied by people as if they were individuals. Okay, so we think about content rights, we think about license agreements, we think about, you know, think about just in the back of your head, these fantasies of like what the internet was like in the 80s or the 90s, of like weirdos obsessed with cyber culture who were wanting to find user forums for communities of people that were kind of like them. And it was sort of like a matching function, like the internet was just a way for you to find your folks. The internet is not like that anymore, <laughs> to put it mildly. The internet is infrastructure. The internet is maintained and supplied, which is really what you're talking about now is that there's a new supply base for it by a very small ecosystem of players. Generative AI in that regard is kind of doubling down on and maybe cementing that reality, which has been kind of incrementally playing out for some for some time. I mean, even just think, forget AI for a second. Like even just think of like the history of Twitter right now, right? Twitter in 2009 was seen by many people as like the future of democracy. I, I literally remember when um, there were these major protests that happened in Iran, I believe in the summer of 2009, and against the, the government. And for I, and again, I'm not an expert on the details here. I've never been to Iran, so I should clarify that. But I, what I remember at the time was that for whatever reason, much of the, the protest movement in Iran was coalescing and sharing information on Twitter. Yeah, I remember and that this was, yeah, this was apparently so significant that the White House personally petitioned either, you know, Jack Dorsey or other executives at Twitter to delay maintenance of their servers so that there were, because there were particular windows of time when these protesters were like kind of effectively relied on Twitter to coordinate their, their, their information and also just like their strategies for what they were going to do the next day to end it again to such a degree that it became kind of in the national security interest of the United States to, to affect when that stuff was going on. Think about Twitter now relative to that. It is, it's okay. Rough. ML Twitter is like run by a bunch of non-accounts. <laughs> I mean, again, I, I don't really, I have an account. I don't really spend yeah, time on it. It's good that like, you don't. I think I sent you some links to examples with this kind of like Gemini rewriting history oh, stuff. Like I don't know email? how it is to enter, access the chat. We use, uh, I could try again some other way. Oh, you put it in the chat. Yeah, we're using yeah. this, this like interface. We, we here. use a special Descript product, not sponsored. You can sponsor us. But oh, this is really funny. News. Oh, there, this is funny. I'm looking there's at the a, There's so yeah. many examples. Yeah, this this article is looking at. Just like, <laughs> I like how it says, certainly. Here is an image. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the part that cracks me up. Yeah, I mean, here are some images featuring various various genders and ethnicities. Yeah, this is good. I like these. These are cool, actually. I like AI generated art is cool, but like this is an important 
point where a norm is going to be defined that I think a lot of people will push back and be like, okay, like, please fix the bias problems, but don't put their, push them in our face. Like, I, so I don't the, want these models yeah. to, like, I do want there to be understanding of the algorithmic and, like, data structures that are causing these biases and to mitigate them. But this is just like, okay, like, you're just going to nuke your reputation if you keep putting these into, like, this is effectively going to be like what Google is marketing is like the replacement to Google search. It's like, it's not going to work. Yeah. So sorry, like, do it. I don't understand why are people upset about this? These images are just cool to me. Like, I don't see what, why people are upset about this. Essentially that they're not historically accurate. Well, yeah, and this is this just. I do Twitter? think people like, are who, who are the yeah, people upset oh, about? Oh yes, this? okay. I mean, like this, these images are coming from Stratechery, which is one of the like highest profile tech analysis blogs out there. So yeah. this person who said generate a famous 17th century physicist, what were they expecting? The only right answer to that was this what? is after they're already biased. Galileo, <laughs> they're already yeah. Like, I mean, they're looking. They're Galileo, or I walk. <laughs> Like it's who, a it's a biased who, exercise. It's not a fair exercise. Look, AI by definition is is it's an amalgam. Okay, so like it's not it's yeah it's it's interesting I guess because it's not a replace it's not a one to one replacement for search in that regard, right? Like if I searched Google for famous 17th century physicist, it's not going to show me hyperlinks to brown people. Presumably, I mean, I, I'm guessing that. I'm doing it right it now. Yeah, what do is, it right now and see what, what it is says. The Google, I, image, the, the Google image result is exactly what look, you would I, expect. It's I, all like faded okay. paintings of like white men in wigs. <laughs> well, but the thing is, that's frankly more accurate to the search. Albert Einstein has a surprisingly big part in 17th century physics searches. I mean, yeah. Well, that's just yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's. What are people look? I, th I think a lot of this is just AI does not replace knowledge. It doesn't replace encyclopedias. It doesn't replace. It's a different kind of tool. I think that maybe we're we're still using the metaphors we've been using to talk about it and think about it are a little bit off base with respect to what it actually can do. Th this is which like I think Jan Lacuna is fine. Critique. It's like Jan Lacuna's critique of all this is like it's not grounded in anything. Therefore, it's not going to be real. And therefore, it can't build the highest level of trust that people want in most of their systems. Well, I think I agree with that. I, don't, I think it's kind of a platitude, but yeah. I mean, it's yeah, kind of, yeah, I mean, Jan I, I speaks in platitudes. He's hilarious. I, like, <laughs> I don't know what It he's seems off. kind I'm of gonna, obvious to I'm me. I'm going to meet yeah. him when I'm in New York for this event in a couple of weeks. He's at yeah. that event. I'll be like, a, if, hi, if <laughs> want to come on the pod? Like, <laughs> yeah, we could invite him. I don't know. I don't know. I, I supposedly, I think I bothered him with my previous, like, that article where I was quoted saying that machine learning is alchemy. He's forgotten. <laughs> I'm sure he's forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I think we need to, this is an invitation. Look, I would rather to return to your original prompt. I would rather open AI bid did basically nothing. And I would rather other people who know what they're talking about to help craft a more accurate semantics to talk about what these fucking things are doing rather than acting like, in this one-to-one -one way, they're either going to replace filmmakers or Google or whatever other existing interface. It's like Google, we happen to be OpenAI is like no longer doing nothing though. They're like making deals with media organizations, and like I well, think that is like yeah. deeply muddling their direction. Even though it may not well, it's, feel it's like alchemy it, like again. that's alchemy because they're they're interested in transforming the interface through which, yeah, this stuff can get accessed and thought about rather than advancing the conversation or the science of what it would actually mean to use this stuff. Those are different projects. And, you know, I'm not casting casting blame exactly. Like if I were opening, I'd probably be doing the same things as them in a self-interested way. But is your goal to help us deliberate more clearly what is going on? Or is your goal to mystify us by inundating us with what these things can do. Those are just not the same thing. We talk about them as if they're kind of are, and they're just really not. Yeah. It's like Sam Altman raising $7 trillion. A lot of very reasonable people that's that I know true. are like, I'm not even going to comment on this. Like, it's just useless. Like, I'm not going to comment. Like, that's not a, like, that's not a real rumor. <laughs> it, it isn't clear 
I think that I think there is a general there's a through line here, which is that it's not clear what actually is the reality that corresponds to what like is coming out of these models or coming out of the people who build these models. We don't really know where these things are in social space. Like so we we don't know what they stand in relation to. Seven trillion dollars. What is comparable to seven trillion dollars? Because if you can't name anything, it, it's not really clear what that means. It's just an arbitrarily larger number than six or five or four. Like what is the next most valuable thing in the world after a seven trillion dollar valuation? I don't even know. I could guess. It's Apple plus Microsoft. Or it's Apple plus Google plus NVIDIA. Right. So it's like all like all other major like tech the companies. The tech economy is so the, the, like the entire tech, tech economy. economy. Right. <laughs> and and even that is like even that is just market cap. So it's which not, is not like, real that's, money. That's, which is not real money, exactly. So like that's that's it's it's liter- seven trillion dollars is literally speculation on top of speculation. Right. And it's not so what what credence should you give it? It's not intelligible. I'm not saying it's bad or good. I'm saying it's not even wrong. Yeah. Okay, earlier I told you I had an announcement. My announcement is today that I opened the Sutton Barto book that has been steadfastly holding my microphone for weeks. You opened it? Yeah. You've never read it? No, I've read it, but I haven't read it in months. But essentially, yeah, so Google released their new open source model, and they've confirmed that they use the reinforce algorithm for their RLHF stuff, which the why this is funny is because reinforce is just policy gradient with the fancy name. Like, I don't know why, mm-hmm. the, the, like, some guy in the 90s wrote a paper. It's like, we call these the reinforce algorithms when it was policy gradient. And I just find it fun because, like, RL is just going backwards in time <laughs> rather than forwards. Like, everyone's like... PPO and, and now it's just like we just use policy gradient big number good and but I mean like the paper doesn't have that many details I think if I comment on it more it's mostly going to be about that like interesting RL history and how we're going backwards and then I think people will go forwards from there which yeah. is like what is the modification of reinforce that's needed because PPO is downstream from it it's just like a, a different it's a PPO is with regularization Reinforce it just like out of the box version. So wait, what did you learn from Sutton and Bartow? Or did you just... I was just reading about Reinforce. Going back to basics. Yeah, I was just reading like this. It's old enough that it's in the textbook. Like PPO and TRPO and all these modern algorithms aren't in the textbook. But it's just fun that it's like I can just read about vanilla policy gradient and it's in this book that I have sitting on my desk. But Google's model ultimately is like better than this Mistral 7B model that everyone's hyped about. Which is why it's so funny. It's like... It makes me real, really vindicated where I'm kind of like, yeah, we're all bad at this in the open. And these people like OpenAI and Google are running laps around us, but like they just don't release anything. So it doesn't really matter. So we're like doing our own thing. And this is what if like Google and OpenAI start playing in the open, it's just going to be like a hilarious effect, mm-hmm. which is good. It just it'll pull people forwards. But it's a good reality check for people that Google can just release like an intermediate training run. And it's better than these comp- the startup that's like, Ooh, Mistral is this French god startup. Google just is like, oh, here's a training side effect. Like, have fun, go crazy, guys. Like, like economies of scale. Economies of scale. I mean, it. We've this is a theme of you know we've brought this up before, and obviously you're, I mean, a contributor to this conversation. I still think that the ongoing. This ongoing consternation of like, what does openness actually mean? Seems relevant here, right? So like pushing the conversation forward is is one thing. I don't want to use the word democratize. I really try and avoid using That's that awful word. word. I've, I've stopped yeah. using it as well. Well, but we need a word for, we need a better word for what that word I think has been trying to capture, which is something like- Inclusivity. In, yeah, I don't, I'm no offense the word either, but it's, it's, like it's trans- better. Well. The thing is, here's what, because here's what's wrong with all these words, because I think both those words are better than democratize. But what's still wrong with those words is that they're ignoring the fact that the criteria for what is made transparent to whom or, you know, what what is to be included in relation to what remains implicit. You're just t- making an abstraction out of what is really a relational like entity instead of sticks. Like, this is sort of what, there's a good paper actually by uh, Clark, well, uh, 
a friend of mine who I did a postdoc with, Emmanuel Moss, and a few other people on this paper, that articulates like the, the way in which we've always talked about AI accountability or ML accountability is kind of bullshit because accountability is a relational property by definition. Something is accountable to something else. So if you're not able to specify what is being held accountable to whom or to what, it's not accountability. It's just a branding kind of initiative. And I actually think, I think that's an important, it's a simple argument, but it's, an, it's a profound one. And it actually underpins a lot of these other abstractions that we often use like transparency or inclusivity because you're, you end up deferring the stakes because you're just sort of pay, like paying this kind of kabuki theater justice to an abstraction and washing your hands when what actually needs to be done is holistically assess what kind of conversation is the one commensurate with democratic norms. Yeah. And democratizing I mean, like, is not a good way. Like what Alan AI is doing is the closest of any. But like what Google is doing here is really just like hype building. They're open sourcing this model because it's very easy for them to or they're they're openly right. releasing the weights. It's not open source. They're releasing it because it's easy for them to do and it's great for the narrative. Google back on top and AI baby. Woo. <laughs> like like they're literally just like their numbers are the best in open and in closed, and they're like this is great for marketing. Look at us. So you could come to Google and do open ML research. Like those are probably like almost all like, like why is Google doing this? They're doing this for marketing to have people help them with their models. Like there's no business model moat for them dropping this thing. It's all like, I mean, no direct, it's all indirect, which I well, think it's bread and circuses, right? It's bread and circuses. Okay. Making it easier for anybody in ancient Rome to attend gladiatorial arenas at the Colosseum does not change who the emperor is. <laughs> right. I mean, that's getting and getting like expanding the seating at the Colosseum so that more people can see a gladiator get his head chopped off by a tiger or something does not in any way change the outcome or the criteria by which outcomes are assessed. Right. That famously it's, well, it's a podcast. You can't see what I'm doing. But it's a it's a thumbs up, thumbs down. We are on classification. YouTube. You can follow the Retort AI podcast on YouTube and see our okay quality reacts and sometimes distract and Google searching. FYI, like yeah. and subscribe. I'm, I'm probably thinking of this because I should rewatch. I've been thinking about rewatching the movie Gladiator. Yeah, I've rewatched sequel. it. It's been on like Netflix. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've watched it. It's Does good. it hold up? I'm not. Yeah, it holds I, up. I think it would. Yeah, it's a good movie. <laughs> I remember it's a good movie. No, but of course the whole point of that movie is that he is able, what I liked most about it from years ago when I saw it is that like he becomes a gladiator, of course, but then he like kind of plays this kind of subtle game of like manipulating the optics of how he's a gladiator to kind of wrest power from a very corrupt, fucked up emperor. And that's, that's kind of where the story goes. And I mean, that we, we don't, we can't play that kind of game in AI right now. But we're just too focused on like making the stadium bigger or improving the seating. I, uh, I do think there could be economic value from this model that Google is giving away for free with a relatively okay terms of use. Like people could deploy this model into somewhat useful products. As like these models, sure. I was saying like the se the seven billion parameter model scale is kind of like the sweet spot where like almost anyone could run inference. Like you could probably do it on your MacBook and not be awful. A lot of people, academics, can do research on it. It's good enough that for really basic tasks, you'll be able to do things that are reasonable. It's like, it's kind of this economic sweet spot right now where like so much is possible with it. So like they are giving up, it's like giving up a, it's like a charity cookie. It's like a charity cookie that they know won't disrupt their, their emperor. It's like when the emperor, the emperor pays for, I don't know, they fill up the Coliseum with water so it's nice and people can come and get free bread or whatever. Like in the Gladiator movie, they literally talk about it. Like this is like, that would be the favorite emperor. I'm going to give them like a week of game so big that anyone yeah, has never right. seen. Like that's like the a third of the way through the plot point. And it's like for Google, it's kind of an apt analogy. It's like it doesn't affect them at all and it makes people like them. And that I know, but right now will boost the stock price. Commodus is also like in love with his sister and like doing all other kinds of crazy ass shit. He's not a good emperor. Even his dad is like, well, we're no. not getting to the fact with whether or not we think Sundar should be resigning over his AI strategy for Bart. Sundar. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm also I don't want the takeaway here to be that I'm comparing Sundar to the oh, Emperor no. Commodus. Sundar is like an actual like <laughs> good like functioning CEO. Like he's done great overall. <laughs> it's look, it's we need I, I do actually think we need better leaders like in this space. Like I'm not anti-CEOs. I'm not like some kind of weird asshole who thinks that there just shouldn't be <laughs> private enterprise. I think my point is just we, we we need to like be aware of like what are like imagine you're a superlative CEO. What decisions are you actually face, faced with that could meaningfully open up access to AI tools? And so far it seems to just be branded circuses and maybe you get a little bit of economic value on the side, which I, I would want I want CEOs to be in the position where they have actual leverage to pull that would make a difference. But they're as constrained as the rest of us, ironically. They're 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 playing the rules of a game that are pretty ossified and pretty structured to favor or not favor certain types of market dynamics. And until those dynamics can change, I don't care if you're Marcus Aurelius, you're not gonna be that good of an emperor. Are you going to get a comment on if Sam Altman would be a good emperor? Yeah, I don't think Sam Altman's... Sam Altman can't even lift. <laughs> oh, yeah, we already established this. <laughs> I'm on the record saying that. The $7 trillion <laughs> asshole. He can't, he can't even say how much he bench presses. We need to get Sam on the pod. Sam, how much can you actually bench press? Do you think he can and bench then, like, press he says, more than us? He might. Like, I'm like a I'm, like, he, he athlete. Looks, he looks like... Yeah, he looks like Tweety Bird, so I think he can bench more than either of us. <laughs> Like his, it's hard. Honestly, it's hard for you to even take it. Whenever you see any photo of this guy, it looks like it, it somehow looks like he like somehow like siphoned muscle mass from his legs and put them into his his biceps. Yeah, like it's it doesn't it almost. It's a it's a look. It's a fashion it, style. Well, it's it's. <laughs> I guess. Well, if what he's after is fashion, that's one thing. He probably still can lift more than me. Until he can be honest about what he, yeah. Until he can be honest about what he lifts, I uh, I'm skeptical. I need yeah. to see it. Sounds good. Okay. Well, we covered a lot. I'm sure there'll be more to talk about next week. Yeah, at this rate, we probably already missed something while we we're recording. At this rate, yeah, we should. <laughs> should it's okay. We'll we'll be on the inter interwebs. We'll check it out. Yeah. Thanks for listening review whatever. like and subscribe share it with friends clip us post it on tiktok clip us <laughs> get seats at the coliseum while they're still while they're still open yeah all right See bye for soon. now all right